I'm not that disillusioned, I know. When I look in the mirror, there's no chance more likely to get into the older pensioners group than get into the young people's group. I want to thank you for coming. Thank you for the invitation. It has been a real joy and privilege. I really have enjoyed it, coming here to share the Word of God. And the folks have listened well and responded well to the Word of God. That's all you can ask, isn't it, when you come as a preacher. Esther chapter 9, and we're going to read this chapter and the three verses that make up chapter 10 as well. And that will complete the book of Esther together for us this evening. And it says in verse 1, Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same. So almost nine months have passed between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Just to get the context When the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution, in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary. What a statement of God's sovereign power and intervention in this situation. They thought they would have the power over the Jews. But God turned it upside down. The Jews had rule over them that hated them. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt. And no man could withstand them for the fear of them fell upon all people. And all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, waxed greater and greater. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction And did what they would unto those that hated them. And in Shushan the palace the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. And Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Aridatha. And Parmashasta, Arizai and Aridai and Vajisatha. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamidatha, the enemy of the Jews, slew they. But on their spoil laid they not their hand. On that day the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king. And the king said unto Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed five hundred men in Shushan the palace. And the ten sons of Haman, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee, or what is thy request further? And it shall be done. Then said Esther, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow, also according unto this day's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. And the king commanded it so to be done. And the decree was given as Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. For the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the fourteenth day also of the month Adar, and slew three hundred men at Shushan, but on the prey they laid not their hand. But the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives, and had rest from their enemies, and slew of their foes seventy and five thousand, but they laid not their hand on the prey. On the thirteenth day of the month Adar, and on the fourteenth day of the same rested they, and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the thirteenth day thereof, and on the fourteenth thereof, and on the fifteenth day of the same, they rested, made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelled in the unwalled towns made the fourteenth day of the month Adar, a day of gladness and feasting, and a good day, 
and of sending portions one to another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar and the fifteenth day of the same yearly, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them, because Haman the son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against them the Jews to destroy them, and had cast poor, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Wherefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore, for all the words of this letter and of that which they had seen concerning this matter, and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, so as it should not fail, that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fall or fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm the second letter of Purim. And he sent the letters unto all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed, according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them, and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of the fastings and their cry. And the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. And the king Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the seas, and all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai. Whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? And for Mordecai the Jew was next unto king Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. Amen. God will bless the reading of his word. And of course, even that very last verse tells us that God didn't just change the circumstances of his people, but he changed the character of his people. That was in many ways the greatest act of God's power in this whole story of the book of Esther, how God worked in the hearts and the minds of his people. And life has many great ups and downs. And if you live long enough, you'll experience the roller coaster, not just of emotions, but of circumstances. And this book is full of ups and downs, isn't it? And as you read it, you can see how one person got up with great plans and hopes and ambitions to see God dash them in 24 hours. This Sunday I'm going to preach on Revelation 18 on how God is going to smash and destroy all the economic power of the Antichrist, not in 24 hours, but the Bible says in one hour, God's just going to turn his world 
upside down and destroy the economic might of great Babylon. God can do that. Only God can do that and reverse all the circumstances in just a matter of time. And verse 1 begins with the fateful day. The day that the Jews, nine months previously, were terrified concerning. The day that Haman had plotted, and no doubt we could say the devil through Haman had plotted, as a means of destroying the Jewish people. But nine months later, God is going to turn everything upside down. And I think it's all summed up in verse 22. You couldn't put it any better than this. He turned unto them from sorrow to joy. That's what God can do. And that's what he's going to do in the future for this world and for the nation of Israel. He's going to turn them from mourning unto feasting and joy when Jesus Christ steps into the situation. And you're just getting a little foretaste here of what the Lord will do for the Jewish people in the future. Now, the tables are turned in terms of the balance of power now. But the Jews act with restraint and care and prudence. And you'll see as you read this chapter, maybe you picked it up in the reading, that in a number of times we read those words, but the Jews touched not the spoil. They were growing spiritually as well as physically in this situation in terms of power and influence, but also spiritual power. And they were learning to act with restraint because they perceived that if they were to seize all this wealth, that no doubt the finger would be pointed by the Persian people and say, in jealousy, the Jews got rich off the backs of us. And of course, that's a lie the devil continues to hurl at the Jewish people today. You don't have to go far on the internet to start to read all the anti-Semitic slurs against the Jewish people and how that they prey upon the non-Jewish people. And you hear the accus- or you see the accusations and you hear the accusations made by anti-Semitic people that the Jews are part of some great conspiracy to suck the life, the material life, from the Western nations. And the Jews here are very careful not to give rise to such jealousy and animosity amongst the non-Jewish population. And although they were entitled and the king gave them permission to seize the wealth of their enemies... No doubt led by Mordecai, probably advised by Mordecai, uh, under the leading of the Lord, they decided not to touch what they were legally entitled to take. Now, you'll also notice as you read, and I won't go through all this chapter in detail, that for the very first time, the king takes an active role in talking to his wife. Previously, it's always Esther going to the king and seeking out the king Ahasuerus's permission, seeking his advice and his counsel. But now for the very first time, we read that it says in verse 12, and the king said unto Esther the queen. This is unadvised, not prodded by her, not manipulated by her. This is the first time we see a change in this king. He's now going to Esther without prompting, without being led down, as we could say, the garden pathway to this conclusion. He's now coming to her and he's asking her for information. And then he's asking her really for advice. And now you're starting to see Esther become a Proverbs 31 wife, starting to become a person that this king recognized has more value than simply her looks. We're starting to see that this woman 
as she grows spiritually, her character is starting to influence others. And that's always the way it should be. As a woman or a man grows spiritually, people start to notice. And maybe those who didn't notice before begin to notice. Begin to seek you out. And I can tell you this, if you're in the workplace tomorrow and you're walking with God, people will start to come to you. And they'll start to talk to you about their problems. Maybe not immediately, when you first come into that workplace, but you just give it time. And over time, whenever the turbulence and the crises of life begin to hit, maybe a health problem, maybe a death in the family, maybe a financial problem, that they don't know how to solve a problem with their children. They'll come and talk to you because they know, having observed you, that you have wisdom they don't have. That they can trust someone like you who has integrity with their situation. And as I say, it may not happen immediately, but you just give it enough time, it'll happen. You'll discover it'll happen in your wider family. Unsaved relatives will seek you out. And sometimes they'll come with selfish motives. They'll come and say, could you pray for me? Could you pray for my son? Could you pray for my daughter? I'm in a problem here. I have a difficulty here. And of course, it's a golden opportunity for you to be a witness and a testimony to those around you. And Esther proves that she's a woman of strength and character. And in verse 13, she replies to the king, and she says, If it please the king, you notice how careful she is, never presumptuous. She has learned to read this tyrant, Ahasuerus. She has learned to handle herself wisely before him. Not once does she put a foot wrong in handling this man. And it's to her great credit that she continues to behave in this way. And, and there's, there's nothing spiritual about being rude or being objectionable as a person. In fact, if you read the Bible carefully, all of the great men and women of Scripture were winsome people, were likable people. If you study, for example, Daniel's life, and we've mentioned him a few times down in Persia, as a young man, people were attracted to Daniel. In Middle Age, people were attracted to Daniel. As an old man, even the new king, the new emperor of the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire, he was attracted to Daniel, and he knew there was something special about Daniel. You think of King David, when he was just a lad, how he inspired others, how he inspired even King Saul in their initial meetings. Saul looked up to him, and Saul made him the head of his army, and how the army of Saul admired David. He was never arrogant. He was always loyal. He was a man whose word was his bond. And even Saul's son and Saul's daughter loved David. He was winsome. And the women of Israel sang the songs. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He was a national hero. And then when he became king, we discover what a man he was, what a gracious spirit he had, and how he held that nation together for nearly 40 years through the trials and tribulations of running a nation like Israel and handling all the various problems. And you see the kindness of spirit he had and the graciousness, how that one of his first acts was to be a blessing to Mephibosheth and go beyond his promise to Jonathan and he restored all the wealth of Saul to Mephibosheth. That was David. Always generous. Always winsome. And you can just go right through the Bible and you'll see uh, the men and women of God who God used in remarkable ways. They all had a wonderful character. A lovely fragrance about their attitude towards others and others towards them. Now, of course, the devil had his people to attack. 
them at the same time. But that didn't stop them being a blessing, being a warm-hearted person to others. And Esther here is now a woman who has become a blessing, not just to her people, but even to her husband. And he is seeking out her advice and her wisdom. Now, she asks what may seem a barbaric thing or a strange thing. She says, let Haman's two sons be hanged publicly on the gallows, even though they were already dead, it seems from this. She asked that they would be hung because they were to make a statement. No doubt Haman's ten sons were fully involved in the conspiracy with their father. Wanted maybe even to take vengeance on the Jews because of what happened to their father and Esther and Mordecai. And Esther wisely understood that that public symbol needed to be there as a deterrence to any future attacks upon the Jewish people. And by hanging them in such a way, it let the whole world know the wickedness of the act of Haman, of the plot of Haman against the Jewish people. And what's interesting is in verse 16, it says, But the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives. Oh, that's, so, that's been the typical lifestyle of the Jewish people throughout the ages. Ever since Moses predicted in the book of Deuteronomy that God would scatter them, throughout the nations, that they would remain few in number. And wherever their feet went, they would tread with fear for their lives. And the Jews even have an expression today. They say, every Jew should go to bed every night with a pack suitcase beside his bed. Because he or she never knows that tomorrow may be the day they have to run for their lives. And if you study Jewish history, you'll see that over and over again. They've always faced the pogroms and the persecution and the anti-Semitism. And what we saw in the last few months, I hope you were paying attention to all these protests. And they went from Western countries to Eastern countries, from cities like Tokyo and Manila in the Philippines to Sydney in Australia, all throughout the coasts of America, all throughout Europe, the gangs of the anti-Semites were out to protest, to declare their hatred of the Jewish people, because that's what it was. Make no mistake about it. They were stirred up by a demonic power to proclaim their hatred of this people. Their dislike of this people. And even though it was evident to all the Persian people, the whole Persian Empire, that Ahasuerus favored the Jews. And his officers knew they favored the Jews. It's interesting that there were still 500 anti-Semites killed in Shushan, the palace. That in the empire, 75,000 lost their lives. And today, just imagine how bad it really would have been for the Jews if the king hadn't passed the second law. If the king hadn't reversed his attitude towards the Jews, we can only but imagine the holocaust that would have been poured out if Haman had got his way and his supporters had got their way. But even with Haman dead and the king now favoring the Jews, still there are 75,000 enemies to be put down by the Jewish people. Now, once this is dealt with, Mordecai orders, no doubt led by God, a feast to be held each year in remembrance of what God did for the Jews. And it's called the Feast of Purim, which is a multiple of the word pure, which means to cast the lot. And really it's a play of the words. If you remember, Haman decided on this day to destroy the Jewish people by casting a lot. And it's almost like an irony play on words of what has happened here. Haman came to cast his lot. Haman came seeking good fortune on this day to destroy the Jews. 
but God turned it around. And of course, we're reminded of that verse in Proverbs 16, verse 33, where it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. In other words, man proposes, but God does what? Disposes. I'm sure you know the old saying. Man proposes, but God disposes. Man has his plans and his ideas. Satan has his plans and his ideas. But in the end, God wins. In the end, God overrules. I was reading one commentator today. And he put it this way. He said, Satan put Haman into the plot. And he turned to God and he said, check. To use a chess metaphor. And God put Mordecai and Esther into the plot. And he said, checkmate. Checkmate. I think that's a good way of putting it, isn't it? Oh, Satan, he thought he had his man, Haman. And he had his plan. And he thought his plan was invincible and unassailable. And Haman went to drink with King Ahasuerus, confident that his star was in the ascendancy, confident that Mordecai was as good as dead, confident that the Jewish people would be wiped out. And no doubt the devil thought so as well. But behind the scenes, God was working and moving. Esther into place and Mordecai into place and through them God turned everything upside down. God can do it and God is doing it in the world that we lived in. God reversed Haman's lot and the same God that was working in Esther's life and Mordecai's life is the same God. And I keep repeating this because it's worth repeating. The same God is at work in your life and my life today. I am the Lord. I change not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When did God get off his throne? He hasn't. He never will. God doesn't share power with the devil. Never has and never will. I was talking to a man on the doors a few months back in Lorne. And he said to me, I don't go to church anymore. Used to go as a child, but I don't. And I said, well, why don't you go? And he said, well, uh, I always start by introducing myself from Lorne Mission Hall, not to promote the church, but to make sure they know I'm not a Jehovah's Witness because when you knock people's doors in Larne, the first thing they think, you must be one of the JWs. So you have to say, I'm from Larne Mission Hall. And then immediately they say, well, I, I don't go to church, but, or I go to this church or that church. So the conversation always begins around church. And this man said, well, he said, I don't go to church anymore. I used to go years ago as a child, as a teenager. But he says, I've quit. To tell you the truth, he says, I'm not even sure I believe in God. Oh, I said, why? He said, well, because of all the difficulties that have come to my life. And he described some of the sufferings he was going through. He was going through a kidney dialysis problem at that time. He was a big, strong man, rugby player. And he said, because of all the problems in my family's life and in my life personally, he says, I I've just lost the thought that even God is at work and God exists in my life. I said to him, sir, removing God from the equation doesn't solve your problem. Doesn't make your sense of loss and pain any easier. All you've done is you've made it suffering for no purpose. Suffering with no hope of ever coming out of the suffering in eternity. That's all you've done. You may have believed the lie of the devil that because you have difficulties and problems in your life that God must be eradicated. God must be erased. But I says, but by taking him out of the equation it hasn't solved the problem. 
Just left you with the suffering, that's all. And the thought that this has happened randomly, for no meaning, no purpose, and even worse, the thought that it can never be rectified in the next life. That there's no hope of an eternity where there's a body with no suffering, no pain, no more struggles. There's no place of eternal rest from your suffering. So by removing God out of the picture, you haven't solved it. Aren't you glad that we are here tonight with God in the picture? We're not coming here tonight to say, well, this life that we have is all there is and all there ever will be. And there's no hope of future justice. There's no hope of a future restoration. There's no hope of a future Removal of temptation from your life or from my life. And the truth is, in many cases, we don't know why everything happens the way it happens. We are not God. And he makes that so clear and is often quoted the verse, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And as you go through the Bible, you'll discover many of God's people struggled with this. You'll discover that many of God's people tried to do A and God said no. It's B. You'll discover that Elizabeth and Zacharias prayed for years and years and years for a child. And they'd even forgotten almost that they had prayed. They'd given up praying. For a child. And then God says. The answer now is yes. And the son will come. In my time. And in my way. You'll discover that King David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And God said what? No. Not you. You'll discover that. The apostle Paul. Wanted to. See God's work advance. In the middle part of Turkey. And God said what? No. You go to Europe. You go to Macedonia. Because there I have a work for you to do. You discover that Paul three times asked the Lord to remove the thorn in the flesh. And three times God said what? No. That's why he's God. And we are not God. Because he is the one who's in control. And I'm sure... Many of those in the room here tonight have prayed for God to do many different things in your lives. And God hasn't said yes. Sometimes God has said no. Sometimes God has not intervened in the situation. And that's why you have to come to books like Esther and say, Lord, you're in control. Not me. It's not a joint effort between God and you. You're the one who works out your will in your time and in your way. And it's our duty to step back and say, I see the fingerprints of God. Guiding, directing, working in the background. And God doesn't keep time the way we keep time. He's never in a hurry. He's never late. But he's never early. He does things in his way. And is his time. And waiting is good for us. It builds character. It teaches humility. It teaches us to be dependent upon God. And not upon ourselves. It teaches us to be more thankful. When God eventually gives us. The answer. And what we need. Now. Verse 31 of this chapter tells us that when they gathered together to have this feast of Purim, they didn't forget the spiritual aspect of it. It says, because they decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of the fastings and their cries. You know, sometimes with celebrations and festivals, that spring out of moments of blessing. It can get carried away. It can become almost like a Mardi Gras. Isn't that right? 
If you observe most of the Jewish population today, they still celebrate the Feast of Purim, but it's frankly a time to eat as much as they can and drink as much as they can and enjoy the dancing and the festivities. A bit like a secular Christmas. But the Jews, when this was initiated, this Feast of Purim, they understood that it had a very significant spiritual dimension. That it was rooted in God moving to their prayers and their fastings and their need of him. And true spiritual dedication should move in our lives from seeing God at work, from remembering God's blessing. That's why we love to meet around the Lord's table, don't we? And if you remember the words, 1 Corinthians 11, and sometimes we hear them so often that they become so familiar that the meaning of them is almost erased in our thoughts. But if you remember what Paul recorded about the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, And he tells us, this do in remembrance of who? Me. And we come around the Lord's table and often we we almost bring the focus onto ourselves. And it's what I feel. And thinking about me and the blessings that I have and the things that God has done for me. Me, me, me. And there's an element of that around the table of the Lord. I'm not dismissing it, but it's not the focus. The focus is this do in remembrance of me. Don't forget that. It's about him and what he has done for you and what he paid and what he suffered and what he is doing right now because he says this you do until I come again. Until I come. He's coming again. And it's all about him. You know so many Christians and I'm digressing just ever so slightly. They love to study the end times. And as soon as you mention the word antichrist, you almost can see they go, wow, this is interesting. I'm not looking for the antichrist. My focus is not on this great dictator that will take over the ungodly world. No, my focus is on the real Christ. Jesus is coming. And he's coming to reign and to rule over this earth. He's coming to make all things right. And our focus should be on him. And him alone. And the Antichrist will be no problem to him. In fact, there's not even, we sometimes call it the Battle of Armageddon. Don't we? It's not really a battle. Because there's no fighting done. Just Jesus Christ comes in and just wipes them out. That's it. They don't get a chance to fire a shot in the hinger. Because when Jesus comes, he's the focus. He's the power. But then let's go to chapter 10. And with this we finish. Of the book of Esther. Just three verses. So I should be fast. Should be. It says, And the king of Hashirah laid a tribute, verse 1, upon the land and upon the isles of the sea. Perhaps this is just a little reminder to us all that the kingdoms of this world are not utopia. That the flesh cannot resolve the problems of man. And the king now still has to bring in the tax to pay for the bills that he ran up in his wars. But really here's the focus. The elevation of of Mordecai. It says all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai. Wow. Who would have thought that a despised Jew, a foreigner, who when we first meet him was under the death sentence, under the threat of being hung by Mordecai, by Haman, who would have thought that by the end of this book, he would become such a powerful figure. 
Who would have thought that he would have been elevated to become effectively the prime minister of the mighty Persian Empire? What an honor. What an elevation for this man, Mordecai. And you know, as he rises in the position that God has elevated him now, you notice that he spiritually has changed. We don't miss the connection between the two. Because at the end of verse 3 it says, For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews. That was his position. But what about his character that led to the position? It says, And accepted of the multitude of his brethren. In other words, respected. Why? Seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. Mordecai is making a better end of his career than the start, isn't he? Mordecai is ending his life, at least what we know about it here, in a far better way than when he began. It's a different Mordecai. Previously, He's out for himself and out for Esther. And he's using all kinds of shenanigans to get him and Esther promoted. And he's telling Esther, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Hide your identify. Blend in, Esther. If it means taking the non-kosher food, take it. If it means having an affair with this ungodly pagan king, and selling your purity to get higher up the ladder. Do it, Esther. But it's a different Mordecai now, isn't it? Not out for himself anymore. In fact, it doesn't even say he's out for Esther's benefit anymore. He's out to help others. To be a blessing to his own people. To do what he can, speaking peace. Every opportunity, you get the impression, here's a man who's become like Moses at the end of Moses' life, the servant of the Lord. Being a blessing to all his people. No longer is he ashamed of his race or his people. In fact, the very opposite. That's the greatest change, I think, in the book of Esther. How God has changed the heart of this man. Now, the best, of course, is to live consistent from the very beginning, like that. But if you haven't lived right at the beginning of your life, you can't change that. You can't go back and live 2023 again. But what you can do is change for the rest, change for the better. Maybe I'm talking to someone here tonight and you look back on your life with regret. The things you said, the things you did, how you handled certain ways, the things, the way you thought. And now you look back with hindsight and say, that was a mistake. That was wrong. And like Mordecai, you could be paralyzed with regrets. Well, you can't change the past. That's self-evident. We only get one go at this life. You don't reverse the tape. But what you can change is your future. What you can change is the attitude others will have of you, at least towards the end of your days. And I have to give Mordecai great credit here that he ends with this great testimony that he's serving others. And he was accepted by his people, respected by his people. And you know, that's the greatest thing, isn't it? To be a servant of others. Paul says when he was talking to the elders in Acts chapter 20 of Ephesus. He says the Lord Jesus taught us this. That it is better to give and to receive. Now the world that we live in. They believe the very opposite don't they? They believe it's better to take And to receive than to give. And they're always on the tick. 
And they're always complaining and moaning. If the government gives 500 pounds, they want a thousand. And they want this and they want that. And if the boss doesn't give a big enough bonus, they're upset. And the world, that's the ungodly, that's the pagan world. Takers. But the child of God who wants to live the life as a servant of God is a giver like the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mark's gospel tells us in chapter 10 that he was the great servant. And he's the one who came not to be ministered unto but to give his life, ministered to others and to give his life the ultimate act of servanthood the ultimate act of giving and there's no higher accolade there's no higher honor than to leave this world with people saying of you he or she was a great servant was a great blessing to others you know, there were two funerals, or really three, but two contrasting funerals at the start of the New Testament church. The funeral of a man called Stephen. And we could almost say the joint funerals of a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. And if you read it very, very carefully, you'll discover that when Stephen died... The Bible says devout men made lamentation over his passing. He made an impact. He touched lives because he was a man who was a servant to all. A blessing to all. But you read very carefully the funerals of Ananias and Sapphira. They just carried them out. Popped them into a hole. And went back to the church for the rest of the service. Made no impact. There was no mourning. There was no lamentation. Because people knew. From observing the life of this couple. That they were takers. Not givers. That they may have been members outwardly. Of the same church. But they were very different types of members. And when you come to the end of the journey of life, and all of us will, unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns tonight, or in the coming days that precede these meetings, if the Lord returns or doesn't return, well, you and I also will have to leave this world in death. And what will be the last part of our lives? How will it be described? Will it be like Moses, serving to the very end, faithfully? Will it be like Joshua, serving to the very end, faithful? Will it be like Stephen, giving testimony to his Lord, serving his Savior to the very end? Or will it be like Ananias and Sapphira? Make no impact, have no effect on others. And to Mordecai's great credit, we, we said a lot of harsh things about him and Esther. Not because we were trying to be critical or looking at it with a critical spirit. But to speak about them in an honorable and fair way. They, they did wrong. They started out wrong, both of them. They made significant mistakes and failures in the early chapters of the book of Esther. But let's give them great credit. What a change. What a change. And if we brought Esther and Mordecai here this evening. And said we'd like to give you both of you to give your testimony. About how your lives went in Persia. I think both of them could sum up their lives with these two words. Amazing grace. All right. Amazing grace. God was so good to us in that despite our failures, in despite our compromises, he turned it around and he changed us. And instead of our lives becoming a curse and a stumbling block to others, a bad example to others, 
God in his grace, his amazing grace, made us good examples and good servants of the Lord. At the very start of this study, I told you this, that when you read the book of Esther and study the book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned. Not because God is ashamed of his name. Not because the author forgot to put God's name into the book. But because God wanted you to see this book through the lens of providence. Of God working not in the thunder and the lightning and the plagues and the fire from heaven. But God working silently and in the shadows in the lives of his people. Not just working in their lives but providing and preserving their lives. In the shadowy way, in the hidden way. But as you study this book carefully, I said, you'll see all over it the fingerprints of God. And I really think the key verse of this whole book is chapter 4 and verse 14. And with this we close. Because this is the first time Mordecai speaks from a spiritual perspective. And he says to Esther, he says, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai, for the first time, discerns, maybe for the first time ever in his life, the fingerprints of God. And he says to Esther, God has put you here for a reason, for a purpose. And if you don't live up to this, Esther, he'll find someone else. But make no mistake, Esther. God will not fail in his promises to his ancient people. And Esther's reply, if I perish, I perish. I'll accept whatever God chooses, his way and his time. And if you study this book so carefully, you'll see these most amazing moments of the fingerprints of God. I wish I had time to list them all. At just the right moment in history, Ahasuerus held a feast. At just the right moment in history, Vashti refused to come. At just the right moment, Memucan gave him the advice to remove Vashti. At just the right moment, Esther heard about the Miss Persia contest. At just the right moment, a person was there to help Esther to get to the top. Just the right moment. God made her queen at just the right moment. She heard about the plot against the Jewish people. At just the right moment, God gave her the respect of the king and the favor of the king. At just the right moment, Haman came to the feast. At just the right moment, God made the king's sleep depart from him. At just the right moment, he opened the book at the right place to hear of the deeds of Mordecai. At just the right moment, Haman fell and touched the couch of Esther and enraged the king. Oh, I, I could just list all the, just the right moment, just the strokes of luck or good fortune or coincidences that seem to always favor the Jewish people and say all through the book God is at work and you see his fingerprints all over this book 
as you face 2024 with your family, face the challenges that will come, remember these words, life is hard at times because we live in a hard world. But God is good. But God is good. All things work together for good. To them that love God. To them that are the called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Because we have nothing else to hang our lives on. Than the goodness of God. And the providence of God. That's why this book of Esther is not just an ancient story to entertain us but it's a story to instruct us to encourage us to strengthen us and as we face 2024 you can say the God of Esther the God of Mordecai the God of the Jewish people he's my God And just as he took care of them, just as he weaved a beautiful pattern through their lives and used their lives for his glory, in spite of their imperfections, and changed them, changed their character, so he can do the same in my life. So he can do the same in my family's life. And you pray, Lord, Make the end of my life greater than the start. Where I have failed you, I repent. But now, make me a blessing. Make me a servant. Make me a person whose life is a servant of all. And a blessing to all. And wouldn't it be wonderful if Points Past Baptist was full of Christians who live for others. No greater life than that. Old William Booth, after he got very old, was asked to come and speak to the officers of the Salvation Army. And they said, General Booth, could you come and inspire all the thousands of officers in this great conference? And he took ill before the conference and he sent word and he said, I can't come. They said, well, General Booth, can you send us a telegram that we can read out a message to the Salvation Army officers of the mission of the Salvation Army? And General Booth says, I will. The night of the great conference, they had thousands of army officers gathered in London. And they said, we have a message from the general about the mission of the Salvation Army. They opened the envelope. They took out the telegram. And there was just one word in the telegram. And it was this word. Others. Others. The mission of the Salvation Army is to live your life for others. The great servant of all. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this week. We thank you for seeing the hand of God in the book of Esther and in the lives of Esther and Mordecai. We thank you for using this couple despite their failures and imperfections. We thank you for the grace of God that took them from being selfish, self-centered, carnal individuals. And we read at the end of the book of Esther, what a blessing they were now to their people, to their nation, and even to their king, Ahasuerus. And they became servants, servants of all. Lord, help us to be like that. Help us to be like Jesus, the greatest servant. Because when we become givers, we walk in his footsteps. His heart beats in our heart. His life shines through our life. We pray for Points Past Baptist that it would be a church full of the servants of the Lord. 
not just in the pulpit or in the eldership, but in every member, in their homes, in their workplaces, in the schools, in the universities. May they be the servants of the Lord. For these things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.